So our de- our guest, uh, who we're getting onto the phone, he's not right here right this minute. Uh, I'll introduce him first. It's Mark Shapiro, who has uh, written an excellent book called Exposed, The Toxic Chemistry of Everyday Products and What's at Stake for American Power. Uh, he, Mark is the uh, editorial director of the Center for Investigative Reporting in San Francisco. And this is from the, uh, the jacket of the book. Uh, he has written extensively on foreign affairs, and his work has appeared in Harper's, The Atlantic Monthly, The New York Times Magazine, and other publications. And he's reported stories for Frontline, now with Bill Moyers, and Public Radio's Marketplace. He lives in San Francisco. So um, the book is uh, it's about the, um, um, the chemical industry, as particularly as it, how, how it applies to uh, con- consumer products such as uh, toys, um, cosmetics, and uh, computers and cars, things like that that use lots and lots of chemicals and high high tech chemistry, and um, the uh, the book goes into detail about uh, many issues uh, ranging from um, cosmetics and toys to car recycling of cars to the regulation of the chemical industry and the new sort of rejuvenated uh, the European Union, which has a unified uh, structure now to do these kinds of regulations and the the actual uh, way that they're now. Um, actually starting to regulate in a t- completely different way than the entire in the way the U.S. has done things in the past. So in the past, the U.S. has been the leader in, 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 the, in regulating chemicals, and other countries followed the lead of the U.S. so they could sell their products here and so on. But um, now that's all being reversed, and Europe is really taking the lead in all of these things. So I'm wondering if we have – great. I believe that Mark Shapiro is now with us. Uh, right here. Glad to have you. Yes. Uh, glad to have you with us today, Mark. Good to be here. So, so I don't know if you. Here. I don't know if you heard the uh, the introduction. I, I just gave a little uh, brief introduction to you and and to your book. Um, maybe you could just, if if you don't mind, uh, just uh, start out with a, maybe the general uh, the, the the thesis or or the 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 key sort of findings uh, that people should know about from your book. If you could do that. Well, the basic uh, 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 thing I looked into and investigated was basically the uh, uh, what's become the world's largest economy, the European Union, has taken a very different approach to regulating hazardous chemicals uh, than the United States. And the uh, EU has taken a very systematic look at the health effects of, of hazardous chemicals and begun to restrict and ban their use while the United States uh, uh, con- continues to permit the use of chemicals that are now being banned uh, both in Europe and as well as elsewhere around the world. So I looked into the uh, response of American multinational companies who operate both in Europe and America to see how they responded to these new rules coming out of Europe. And what what we're talking about here, just to make it clear, is uh, is evidence suggesting kind of rising uh, endocrine troubles, uh, rising rates of breast cancer among women, uh, declining sperm counts among men, and uh, a whole array of conditions that scientists are beginning to speculate, well, far more than beginning to speculate, are are suggesting uh, are contributed to by the chemicals that we encounter essentially on a daily basis in, in our lives. In, in toys and in cosmetics and uh, appliances and across the board. So I, I both yeah. talk about that phenomenon and, and, and what that means from a public health point of view, from a health point of view of, of, of Americans here, and also the enormous shift in uh, power uh, that uh, that's represented as, as the EU begins to regulate those hazards. 
So um, I first got uh, familiar with your work by when I read an article in um, in uh, Harper's Magazine called Toxic in Action, Why Poisonous Unregulated Chemicals End Up in Our Blood. Uh, it was by you, of course. Um, yeah. And it, it had a number of shocking uh, things in it. Uh, it talked about uh, the... Um, the number of different chemicals that they're finding on a, uh, you know in in, in in inside of people in in their, in their blood as you mentioned in the title um, and uh, the levels are potentially dangerous for a lot of these as you mentioned in the ways you mentioned you also talk here about um, the toxic substances control act of 1976 um, which is mm-hmm. i guess the yeah. primary mechanism by which the US government is 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 regulating um, Chemicals in in our you know in our in our I don't know mm-hmm. in toys and so on. Uh, I, I could I could tell you what the article says, but you maybe you could paraphrase it yourself. Yeah, yeah. That. Well, that was a, that was a pretty good way of introducing it. Uh, but um, but uh, what, what we're talking about here is essentially uh, our own uh, Center for Disease Control, our own uh, CDC. Uh, basically did a test on, on, on Americans, a whole series of biomonitoring tests, and found out that at least some 148 uh, chemicals uh, are found in the bloodstream of basically all the Americans they sampled, which was a random sampling of, of, of Americans across the population. So we've got these chemicals in our blood, all of us, you, me, and I'm sure all of your listeners have it in the blood. So then the question is, what do those chemicals do? Why does it matter is the question. And what uh, my book uh, talks about and what I talk about about, uh, extensively in the book is looking into what those chemicals are and what they're doing. And what we find out is that, number one, uh, many of those chemicals are, 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 are suspected of, uh, of causing, uh, contributing to cancer, of contributing to, uh, to mutations in, uh, in genetic uh, material, in uh, disrupting uh, the reproductive system, and in disrupting the endocrine system, which is basically the nervous uh, system of, of human beings. And, uh, and, 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 and our approach here, and what I will talk about in the book, we have been outpaced, essentially, by the rising scientific knowledge about the effect of chemicals. And the law that you mentioned, the Toxic Substance Control Act, is the major law that is supposed to regulate chemicals in the United States, uh, in essence, does not do so. Because 90-plus uh, percent of the chemicals now on the market today, and we're talking about industrial chemicals, uh, everything from industrial chemicals to chemicals in cosmetics and toys and electronics and automobiles and, and across the board of things that people use every day, have never been tested for their toxicity. But scientists are now testing them for their toxicity, and they're finding surprising conclusions that they all can be highly, not at all, but many of them can be highly toxic. So... Uh... There's an interesting uh, point here where, where it says that, uh, well, let me just, there's an, an amazing fact about this, the TSCA, um, the Toxic Substances Control Act, which says that <clears throat> any chemical which was in use before 1979 was exempted from the law's screening requirements. So, in other words, those chemicals, and there's, there was no um, sunset clause on those chemicals, uh, apparently, on those, uh, so that you could continue to use them forever just because you happened to be using them before 1979. Yeah, yeah, you got it. I mean, you've identified uh, uh, one of the central flaws in the existing laws here in the United States that are governing chemicals, and that is in the 70s, uh, we were the first country, the United States, to begin um, uh, uh, trying to regulate environmental hazards. And I have to say, we, uh, the United States created the EPA. It was the first country to do so back in the 1970s. 
and uh, and we began the process of, of of regulating chemicals. We were the first country to do that too, and that was back in the 1970s under Nixon and and Carter. But what happened in the in the in the in the, in the writing of the uh, Tosca was that the industry lobbied very very strenuously and succeeded in essentially guaranteeing that all chemicals already on the market as of 1981 would be grandfathered onto the market without any testing. And in fact, what we have now, uh, some uh, 30 years uh, later, is uh, is 90% of the chemicals that were on the market in 1981 are still on the market today. And we're left with a um, huge, we're talking 60-plus thousand chemicals that have never been tested for their toxicity. And that is the loophole that, uh, that, 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 that the Europeans as well as people around the <coughs> Excuse me. The Europeans, as well as people around the world, are are starting to try to fill. Although that is not happening here in the United States. Well, so, the, there's a there's a clause in the TSCA which allows them to add new chemicals to the list, right? Uh, well, the TSCA says that basically new chemicals uh, have to be kind of uh, gone through some toxicity screening by the EPA. Meaning the EPA assesses their toxicity and assesses the, the literature on toxicity. But here's the main point is because we've grandfathered onto the market all these tens of thousands of chemicals, again, 90% of them on the market, the industry has had very little incentive to develop new chemicals. Because on the one hand, they can use the chemicals they've already been selling for 30 years and never go through any toxicity testing whatsoever. So why bother developing new ones? And that's what we've uh, uh, been left with here in the United States is an attachment to this status quo that's leaving us with uh, exposure to many chemicals that have been on the market for decades now and are exposing us to, to, to real environmental toxins. Okay. Yeah. That's the central challenge of Tosca today, really. And, and, and basically what, what's happening and what I talk about in the book is a very different approach now being taken in the European Union. Back then in the 1970s and even into the 80s, the United States led the world on environmental uh, protection, as flawed as it was, and it was immensely flawed, and I was one of the people writing about the flaws. But basically the rest of the world followed our lead. And uh, so the Europeans made their own version of Tosca, and the Japanese made their own version of Tosca. And, but now that is changing very dramatically. The U.S. influences the world has been ebbing significantly. And while our own uh, administration has essentially been retreating, uh, 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 intensively retreating from uh, principles of environmental protection, the rest of the world is not waiting. And they are moving ahead uh, forcefully with much more aggressive efforts to protect their citizens from environmental hazards. And that's what I write about in the book. So there's a couple of specific uh, ones that you talk about in detail. The, I don't know how to pronounce it, but phthalates? Yeah, which phthalates. Is a, mm -hmm. Phthalates. It's a softener, so you can make really squishy rubber duckies and things like that out of them, right? Right. Um, and that, that apparently, uh, as you said is a, in the book, uh, in great detail about the, the endocrine problems or... or Problem of oh, the development of um, sexual organs and right in, 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 in the male in boys. Yes, yeah, in boys. Yeah. So that's the, a that's a dangerous thing. Well, I'll give you this. It's a good example. It's a way to look at this phenomenon that we're talking about. There's a uh, mounting body of evidence uh, that that basically exposure to phthalates at a very young age, and particularly even in the mother's womb, and later when children suck and uh, on toys. Uh, the exposure to this phthalates, which is used to soften plastic, 
could actually be contributing to the decreased production of testosterone, which is, of course, the uh, male sexual hormone. And uh, I don't really need to explain in detail why this is something you don't really want to mess with. And so what you've been finding is that because of decreased uh, production of testosterone, uh, scientists have been finding a number of kind of... uh, 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 distortions in the development of the male uh, sexual uh, system. And uh, as a result of this uh, mounting body of evidence, uh, the European Union, uh, over across the water, has essentially banned the use of phthalates from all toys aimed at children under the age of three, and they've done so for about the past seven years. While it's here in the United States, uh, we, have, we have looked at the same evidence we're talking about the same evidence from scientific institutions in the United States and in the European Union, and our own government has refused to act on these hazards, so there are no limitations on the use of phthalates. So you have a situation where uh, where Americans are being exposed to chemicals uh, that Europeans are protected from, and here's the twist. Uh, number one, uh, you go into any toy room in, 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 in Europe, and, uh, and and the kids there, I can assure you, have plenty of uh, funny little animals to play with. And well, they're very hard, little. though, obviously. They're really, really hard. And, uh, yeah, they're stone. Un- it hasn't yeah. thrown, them back. <laughs> <laughs> thrown them back to the Stone Age. <laughs> so I think that's, uh, that's uh, this is a, 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 an example uh, of the kind of double standard that's really emerging Um no, but I was kidding. They, they actually aren't hard, right? They've actually found another way of making. Oh them. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Sorry. I, I, yeah. I assumed people knew we were joking. Yeah. No, the uh, the in fact, what's happened as a result of this law in in in, in Europe is essentially that industry has been forced to find uh, uh, less toxic alternatives, and in fact, they have. And so they have found a less toxic alternative, and they're making uh, toys. You know, with that alternative, there's a number of them out there on the market today that are far less toxic than phthalates. And here's a twist. Here's a twist: is that all those toys that come in from China, because of course China uh, makes toys essentially for the world, as we've learned over the last couple of months. Uh, well, there are factories in China producing toys uh, without phthalates for the European market, and producing toys with phthalates for the American market. <laughs> Really? Yeah, yeah. It's so, quite a twist. So, I mean, <clears throat> one of the things you describe in the book is the difference in the sort of philosophy or technique of regulation, which you alluded to just a second ago, uh, with the phthalates, which is that there's a different criterion for the, the, chemi- the use of a chemical. Uh, that basically it's it, it, maybe I, I, you can explain it, but I, my understanding was basically that in the U.S. you have to prove that it's harmful beyond a shadow of a doubt and in Europe you have to prove that it's safe is that is that a fair uh, well I think the um, the different approaches are, are really central to you know how, how we how are uh, our, our, our different approaches to chemicals in in Europe they operate according to something called the precautionary principle and it may, basically ah, means that the accumulation of scientific evidence uh, the, the, the the sort of uh, uh, assemblage of scientific evidence around a particular harm uh, is enough to trigger the government to act to prevent that harm from happening. And that's why it's called the precautionary principle. They take a precautionary approach. And so before harm is done, they try to head that off, as the evidence suggests harm, and, and either ban or restrict the substance. In the United States, by comparison, uh, the our own regulatory authorities have, have to come up with, number one, 
a um, a um, a thorough, conclusive scientific evidence about uh, a potential harm, and that, as any scientist, uh, and I'm sure there on your fine university campus would tell you, uh, is an almost impossible uh, standard to meet. Uh, conclusive right. science is is something any scientist would probably scoff at. Um, and two. Uh, the, uh, the 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 costs and benefits of whatever action is even proposed, if it gets to that state, are essentially weighed between the cost to industry and the benefits to society, and that means that essentially the U.S. regulatory authorities have essentially been paralyzed, unable to act, and in fact for the last uh, 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 19 years have taken basically no actions against chemicals. I mean, we've, we've banned basically about a dozen chemicals over the last like 30 years. And um, and it, this is in spite of the fact that the evidence is mounting. We have a lot more evidence now, uh, now being 2007, of course, from the days in the 1970s when there was very, you know, relatively limited epidemiological data. Now that data is beginning to flood from research institutions uh, in this country as well as overseas and indicating what the effects of these chemicals actually are. But we don't have a regulatory structure to keep up with them. So, uh, yeah. Well, uh, um, that's a very interesting uh, di- difference. Go I ahead. Mean, Sorry. The, the main point then I want to just uh, uh, on this question then of Tosca is the uh, is the is the Europeans looking at this data, looking at the data like I explained to the phthalates, but looking at data across the board at many 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 you know hundreds and hundreds of other substances are saying, hold on here for a minute. We've got uh, tens of thousands of substances on the market. Because guess what? We followed Tosca way back then. But now, after a number of scandals involving chemical exposure, they're saying, hold on a minute, we've got all these unregulated chemicals never been tested. Let's start figuring out what, 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 what the heck is out there. And so they're, they've demanded, uh, they passed a law in the end of uh, last year uh, saying that all those chemicals now have to go through a kind of a rigorous um, analysis that's of their toxicity before they can remain on the market. And that is now presenting an enormous challenge to American industry because suddenly you're going to have, um, number one, you're going to have data become available from Europe that has long been unavailable here in the United States because of the EPA's constraints on uh, sharing data with the public. And two, you're going to be having uh, chemicals and consumer products across the board that have undergone a toxic screen in the European Union now competing against American products that haven't. Mm-hmm. So we we could have a situation where where when we when we buy our, our shampoo or buy our you know our lipstick or whatever it is um, that that it will have a, a labeling saying uh, this is a, approved by the European uh, for sale in Europe <laughs> and then that would be a sort of a higher quality mark uh, on the on the product I wonder if that will ever happen uh, well it could I think some of those uh, some of those European marketers are actually probably thinking that right now particularly in areas of cosmetics for example where 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 you know the cosmetic industry has um, has faced in Europe, but they've never faced here, which is that the Europeans have said have have had a look at the ingredients in cosmetics and said there are carcinogens in cosmetics, there are mutagenic substances in cosmetics, there are reproductive toxins in cosmetics, and in 2005 they banned the inclusion of those kind of substances in all cosmetics sold in the European Union, and but- now. And, and and that was an uh, quite a wake up call, because who knew here in America that we even had such substances in there? Well, now we've learned because the Europeans have provided a list 
of those substances in cosmetics. And so American companies are now facing a huge challenge because what do they do in Europe when they're an American company? Well, in some cases, they take the uh, toxins out of their uh, uh, product line in Europe, but they keep selling what it is they've been selling uh, here in the U.S. Yeah, I see. So there's not necessarily uh, going to be an automatic uh, improvement in the quality of our products. We, we can't assume that um, without more regu- actual regulation or something. Well, in some industries, we can we can actually, in some industries, I actually think we're going to be the accidental beneficiaries of uh, of the regulations coming out of Europe because some of the big multinational companies, not all, but some, are um, some of the cosmetic companies, uh, some of the electronic companies are beginning to um, readjust their standards to those of the European Union. Right. And in that case, uh, we, we as Americans become kind of accidental uh, beneficiaries of, of laws passed uh, essentially in Brussels. Sim- simply because it's not worth their while to produce two different, have two different product lines. That, that right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that still, though, doesn't answer the question of what uh, Chinese manufacturers or what manufacturers who don't care, for example, about the European market, which is a lot of these no-name manufacturers or generic manufacturers who may not care about the European market, uh, 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 where they sell, because then, in that case, they can give up on the European market and just sell the United States, which is a pretty big market on its own, and I think that's what's happening also, is that we're, as a result, becoming kind of a dumping ground for products that are banned uh, in Europe and elsewhere and are still available to be sold here in the United States. So one thing I wanted to ask about is more generally is that uh, since around the time that Tosco was passed has become a wave over uh, American politics of an anti-regulatory uh, uh, atmosphere in which uh, the right wing in particular has strongly pushed the idea that all regulations are bad and so on and have to be done away with. And certainly the Bush administration has elevated that to a high art. And I wonder, uh, you know, if you might like to comment on that. The usual arguments uh, given are, you know, that, well, it interferes with the free markets. You know, it's going to uh, it's going to cost jobs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to make all your products more expensive. The country is going to go bankrupt, you know, and on and on and on. Right, right. And that, that is always the argument um, here in, uh, in in America. When, whenever there's been an attempt to impose more regulations <laughs> on there, is exactly that. Essentially, we're going to lose jobs. You're being... Uh, histrionic, you're too excitable, uh, uh, this is going to I- I- impede our uh, competitive position and impede the position of a me- and, and send jobs overseas and et cetera, et cetera. We hear this argument over and over and over again. So I went and actually looked at what the effect was on these measures in European industry. I went and said, okay, so let's find out about this economic argument. And I found out that, that in every case across the board, uh, there has not been the economic catastrophe that had been predicted by industry. In fact, quite the opposite has happened, which is that uh, industry was prompted to, to, to develop uh, new approaches to doing things in a less environmentally hazardous way, come up with new products that were more uh, or uh, less, uh, less malevolent uh, effect, and are now often presenting a, a competitive challenge to American industries that haven't done that. So that idea that somehow this is going to cause economic catastrophe and job loss has actually been, I think, a, a, a bluff for the most part uh, here in the United States. And I point that out in industry after industry after industry, that this argument, when you actually look at the numbers, which I did, uh, does not hold up. 
So I had a, a question from uh, one of our listeners, uh, regular listeners, who, who um, emailed me. He, he says uh, there's a um, thing called uh, by bisphenol A, mm-hmm. carbonate, yeah. BPA, uh-huh. or nalgene, uh-huh. or recycling symbol 7. Uh, the question he asked is: Is that is that a, is that safe? He's heard that it's unsafe and, and and affects the endocrine system. I'm wondering if you happen to know about that specific. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I spent uh, a lot of time researching phthalates, which are very similar to BPA, but not quite the same. Uh, BPA, from what I can tell so far, is there's a lot of scientific evidence suggesting that uh, that that it has a serious endocrine disrupting effects. Now, I want to point out that one of the things I did in my book is I wanted to end this kind of back and forth on on scientific uncertainty because, like I said earlier, the battle here in the U.S. is always uh, going to cause economic dislocation, and then there's always a scientific battle. The industry has their scientists, and the environmentalists have their scientists, and they battle it out, and it basically leads to paralysis because the industry scientists say, uh, no, your studies are flawed, and the environmental scientists say, we've found problems, and it goes back and forth. So what I wanted to do was find out the examples, and there are many, many, many examples now, where that debate uh, that debate has been resolved. On BPA, on bisphenol A, I've seen a lot of evidence that suggests it does have endocrine-disrupting uh, 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 potential. And, you know, if I had a choice, I'd probably stay away from it. But the, um, uh, the, what's, what's very helpful now, uh, both from a journalistic but also from a scientific and a public health point of view, is to actually find out what the world's essentially major economy is doing about the same challenge that we face here in, in the United States. So in every case I look at in my book, uh, uh, cases where the scientific dispute, the discussion among scientists uh, has, has been resolved. And in the European Union, they've decided to, to ban phthalates because they've decided that is a dangerous substance while that scientific debate still goes on here in the United States. And on BPA, the EU has not yet uh, acted to ban it, although it's kind of a, um, a big dispute now. I think we can learn a lot uh, from from the particular actions taken because I look at Europe not because it's a it's not because it's a they've got nice wine and cheese although you want to <laughs> the French benefit uh, uh, and um, but because this is an economy and uh, that that is sort of comparable to our own in terms of sophistication in terms of education levels in terms of affluence and uh, and, and and we can compare. The approach that's been taken in the United States, the approach that's been taken in Europe, which is as close as you're going to get in terms of economic comparison in the world right now, and what you find is that uh, is that over and over and over again, the Europeans have opted to take a much more precautionary approach. And guess what happened? When they've done so, one, they've taken toxic substances out of circulation. Two, their industry uh, has not suffered. Three, in many cases, those industries have in fact thrived by finding uh, 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 less toxic and more environmentally benevolent substances. And those businesses are now thriving in an environment where people, consumers, both in this country and around the world, are becoming much more environmentally cognizant. So that's where the future is lying, and I think in many ways American industry is, is, is kind of shooting itself in the foot by arguing against uh, regulation that would, that would, that would, that would um, at least meet those of the EU, if not exceed them. 
Another topic uh, you addressed in your book has to do with um, issues of recycling old equipment, like old cars or old computers. We've got you know hundreds of millions or billions of old computers now that are obsolete. Um, cell phones. <laughs> cell phones, right. Well, what's happening to all that stuff, and, and what is the difference? Is there is there a good solution um, or, or a better are there better or worse approaches to this problem and, and what did you find? Uh, what, what, what I found is that the um, of course you've identified a real problem, which is that uh, electronics and appliances often are made with very small amounts of um, of chemicals as well as uh, uh, toxic minerals like lead and, and cadmium and chromium, which are which are very uh, potent uh, uh, chemicals of various uh, effects on the neural system and on the brain. Um, very small amounts, and uh, so it's not like you're going to get uh, sick from using your iPod or anything like that. But once it gets thrown into a dump somewhere and you've uh, it no longer works, you throw it away, and it ends up being either a dump in this country or more often abroad in Africa or in Asia somewhere. Well, it leaks into the soil, it leaks into the water, it leaks into the air, and those minute substances pool together. If you've ever seen these piles and piles of discarded computers, you know that. Uh, just go for acres and acres and acres in these zones. All that stuff uh, collects and begins to poison water supplies, po- poisoning air, poisoning people. And so the uh, Europeans, as a way to prevent that from happening, have instituted a series of bans on these very, very toxic uh, ingredients that often are used uh, in electronic devices. We're talking everything from refrigerators to DVD players to iPods to uh, cell phones. I mean, to sophisticated electronic transformers. I mean, the, the whole anything that plugs into a wall, basically. Um, and um, have one uh, required that, that these uh, six substances be removed: lead, mercury, cadmium, chromium, and, and two. Uh, uh, synthetic flame retardants, and also required that um, that manufacturers be responsible for recycling these uh, devices, which gives them an extra incentive to get rid of all the toxic uh, ingredients. So uh, what you've got is in the EU this demand that these materials be removed, and in the United States, again, no law, no similar law whatsoever anywhere here in the United States uh, governing those substances. Now here, you have an interesting example where the electronics industry, which is truly a transnational uh, industry, uh, sells billions around the world, basically, has opted, uh, rather than resisting the Europeans' uh, efforts, which uh, to a great extent many other American industries have done, have opted to reformulate uh, their products according to European standards. So that is uh, that has been a very very interesting development to watch how this works. Yeah. So it's, so some some of the some of the components need to be, I mean, it cannot be <clears throat> eliminated because they might form an integral part of the uh, the chip. I mean, right. For example, if you have a gallium arsenide chip, which is an extremely fast electronic chip, which you might need in certain types of, you know, satellite equipment or something, mm-hmm. it might be impossible to get rid of that, right? Well, you would probably know that better than I, since you're a computer scientist, and 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 I know that there have been some substances that have been waived from the re- regu- from the regulation because uh, because there is literally no alternative. So, what what about and, like lead? Lead is used in solder when you're soldering components on a mm-hmm. board, or do they have alternatives to to lead? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you could answer that also. I understand that tin is uh, is has been used um, in other yeah. kind of alloys. Okay. But, um, uh, and the, uh, the, 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 the as, as one computer um, 
scientist, uh, uh, I'm sorry, computer consultant, uh, told me in talking about this issue, he said, he said, look, like 85% of these substitutions for this industry have been very simple. But it's those other 15% that it has been difficult to find substitutes for. And, you, you know, and, and that is a challenge in finding new materials. But you start, you're starting at a point of 85%, which he said were, were relatively easy to find. It's just nobody had ever asked for it before. And so you're also suggesting this idea that a company is responsible to essentially take back their, their product afterwards and, and deal with it. Exactly. But that's not that that type of regulation as far as I know doesn't exist here in this country at all. No. And 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 to a great extent the the you know, we're talking electronic firms, you know, the big the big guys, you know, Panasonic's and the Sony's and the Apple's and you know, the big the big ticket operators. They are all responsible in uh in, in Europe for taking back their uh their electronics at the end of their lifetime. They're literally take back stations at major electronic retail outlets where 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 which are obligated to take back uh, your materials so the company itself can recycle them. Whenever, and, and, and that's done with the complete, uh, uh, you know, complicity and cooperation with the, with the major companies. Here, whenever that's been proposed, uh, at state legislative level or even in Congress, uh, that's been opposed ferociously by the, uh, electronics industry. So you have another dual universe happening. One, it's actually happening in uh, the European Union, and here that very same industry that is doing it in Europe is uh, resisting and refusing to do so uh, and actually actively opposing efforts to make that happen here. I would say when it comes to electronics industry, though, on the other side, that they have made an effort to begin taking those chemicals out at the, the very least because of the nature of their global market. So the electronics industry is very interesting. It's kind of a mixed bag. It's on the one hand, the chemicals are coming out, but on the other hand, the recycling principles are being resisted. Yeah. Well, one more thing I, I just wanted to get your, your comment on because this also appears in the book, um, but then we should probably wrap this up. So the, the, the comment has to do with the difference, again, between Europe and the U.S. regarding tort law or regarding the, the use of lawsuits uh, to as a way a regulatory mechanism yeah the um, uh, uh, the uh, what you, you when, when I went to uh, Brussels which I went to uh, several times to do reporting on the book I would talk to the um, officials in um, in American companies about I say why why you you're going along with this new law here? Whether it's a cosmetic law I mentioned, the electronics law, the the the, the, the chemical registration law, whatever it is. And I said, uh, you're going along with this here. Why why are you so actively opposed to this uh, very same law or even something weaker in the United States? And they would always say, um, they would always say because we have a tort system back here in the United States. We have we have a a, cla a class action lawsuits and those can clobber us, and so that keeps us honest basically. And uh, when you think about it, number one, that's very interesting because the um, the tort system relies on what you could call retributive justice. In other words, the damage has already been done. Now we prove who did it, and then we get a multi-million dollar judgment from those people. And uh, what they're suggesting was that because we have that tort system here in the U.S., we don't need strong regulation. So I went out and looked at actually how effective that tort system is. On the one hand, it has been effective to, as a disincentive towards grotesquely adverse uh, or grotesquely uh, abusive uh, practices. 
On the other hand, you have uh, the extreme difficulty to ever prove a case like that in law. It can take years and years and years and years to prove such a case uh, uh, to the satisfaction of, of, of our legal system and can cost millions of dollars. And two, of course, the damage has already been done, which the whole European system is oriented towards preventing from happening. Right. And um, so I think there's kind of a... a, 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 a Perhaps a flaw in that thinking. I also, just a little extra aside, I decided to look into who has been funding the efforts to reform our very tort system. And in some cases, <laughs> uh, surprise, surprise, was the very same companies that were arguing to me how important it was to have a tort system. They were arguing that in Europe. And back in the States, their own companies were putting money into the so-called tort reform movement to basically restrict access of Americans to the courts on these kind of cases. Right. Well, on the way over here, Bob and I were talking about the, the issue of the objection to regulation. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and how they basically have made up all these arguments that they want to improve competition and they want that it stifles competition. But, of course, the last thing they want is real competition. Um, <laughs> so the whole thing is the arguments are just a big farce um, in every way. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're on something there. I mean, the notion that that regulation uh, diminishes innovation is one of the big things, and it diminishes competition. That is, when you actually analyze what's actually happened in in places where there's stricter regulation, it's been the exact opposite. It spurs uh, innovation because people have to start from the same place, from the same place, and come up with new solutions to 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 whatever problem it might be, and then they start competing. And that's exactly what's happened. It's, it's hardly a controlled economy in uh, the European Union. You have a lively, vibrant, uh, competitive uh, landscape that's as competitive as our own. So it's, 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 I think it's a bit of a ruse to talk about how regulation sort of tampons, uh, to tampers down um, uh, either innovation or, or competition. What yeah. you do is you establish a level playing field at a different point. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess we'll we'll wrap it up now. I, I really appreciate your coming on our program, and I, I hope that you get called to go to go to con go to Congress before uh, and, and testify about these issues. Uh, so we've been talking to Mark Shapiro, uh, who's uh, the author of "Exposed: The Toxic Chemistry of Everyday Products and What's and What's at Stake for American Power." So uh, thank you again, Mark. For thank you very much for being on Left Out. Thank you. It's great talking to you. Bye. Great to talk to you. Bye bye. We will take a uh, we'll now take a short uh, musical break and we'll be back uh, in a few minutes time.
Welcome back to Left Out. That was a cut from Queen's old song called Another One Bites the Dust, an appropriate intro to the next uh, segment of Left Out today in which we want to talk a little bit about the Australian elections, which were uh, held earlier this week. Let me mention before uh, starting uh, in on that topic that uh, listeners are invited to call us at 412-268-9728. If you want to be on the show, you can also send mail to bob at leftout.info or uh, join the AOL chat room, Left Out, and, uh, and uh, get in touch with us there. So many of our listeners will know that uh, earlier this week, uh, the Australian Labor Party was swept into power in, in Australia in the Australian uh, Parliament, uh, parliamentary elections that were held earlier this week, which uh, not only did, uh, did it uh, remove John Howard, uh, Bush's right-hand man, uh, from power, but it also, as a matter of fact, was such a sweeping victory that uh, even Howard himself lost his own seat. Uh, as far as I understood it, I think that may not be confirmed, but that was the speculation I heard as of yesterday. Um, I was just looking in the City Morning, Morning Herald, and I didn't uh, see a, a definite uh, a definite outcome there yet. But it seems that he was even swept from his own seat, which he's held for 33 years in uh, a North Sydney suburb, which is uh, a wealthy suburb where the uh, Australian uh, analogs of the Republicans would live. And uh, so it's really quite delightful, and I many many of my friends um, in who live in Australia or are from Australia have been uh, celebrating uh, shamelessly all week uh, and with great sense of relief to finally be rid of uh, be rid of Howard. So this marks another in a long series of topplings uh, of uh, Bush's cronies in the uh, last seven years, starting with uh, uh, Jose Maria Aznar in Spain, uh, arguably Silvio Berlusconi, uh, his association with, with uh, Bush uh, and the Iraq war certainly contributed to his downfall. Um, and then, of course, as we all know, Tony Blair, and now John Howard. So uh, I must, I must uh, say, I'm uh, I'm happy to engage in a little bit of triumphalism uh, over this because uh, I, uh, not being a big fan of George Bush or his policies, and so we're finding. Uh, from that point of view, we're finding Bush to be increasingly isolated. Of course, uh, on the other hand, that's bad for the United States because one of the one of the uh, extremely bad, enduring and bad effects of the Bush administration policies, as we've as we've argued many many times here, is the very isolation from from our traditional allies, in, for example, in Europe or in Asia. Australia, um, and uh, these uh, these these I uh, think these injuries do add up and are are going to cost us one way or another in in terms of our influence around the world, in terms of our standard of living, in terms of our ability to 
influence world affairs and on and on and on. Um, so in that respect, it's bad. On the other hand, it's probably no more than a year, roughly. I don't know, a little less than a year, thank God, isn't it? When's the, uh, the election? The election is first Tuesday in November, so we're yeah, past but, that. Uh, we have to wait to the inauguration, yeah. yeah right. So we've got a little bit, uh, like something like 14 months to go. Uh, you can get one of these Bush countdown clocks and uh, keep track of your misery uh, for as day by day we have to put up with that clown. So, but his uh, counterpart, it's uh, remarkable how much John Howard is a is a kind of a uh, a clone of, of Bush. I mean, he's he's every bit the inarticulate buffoon um, that George Bush is, and it was uh, remarkable during the particularly during the uh, the run-up to the Iraq war with the propaganda campaign. Uh, there, It was totally evident to me, although it was never reported as such in mass media to my knowledge, that uh, that John Howard was being fed his lines because as a friend of mine in Sydney uh, said, well, Bush wouldn't even finish his sentence and John Howard would complete it for him uh, down there in Australia because they would be suddenly on the very same day at the very same time have the exact same <laughs> talking points with the exact same terminology and and, uh, you know, just absolutely in unison, coincidentally, of course. And, you know, so he's been uh, he's been a key enabler, not nearly uh, the enabler doesn't nearly have the influence that that Tony Blair had, because I, I maintain that had the U.K. opposed uh, this ridiculous uh, operation in Iraq, um, tragic operation in Iraq, that it may well not have happened. But uh, as we all know, that's uh, water well under the bridge. So one thing that has happened now in uh, Australia, one thing I want to mention is uh, Kevin Rudd is the new, will be the new prime minister in Australia representing the Australian Labor Party. He's a former uh, diplomat. Um, and in fact, it's been commented many times and many listeners may have heard that uh, amongst uh, other of his many skills, uh, he, has, he has considerable political skills. Um, he is also uh, fluent in Mandarin Chinese. And for the Australian economy, this is particularly significant. And um, uh, since they're much closer uh, geographically and I think economically to the Chinese than even we are. And so I think that will be uh, be very much to their benefit and may or may, may not uh, necessarily be to the United States' benefit, at least during the remainder of the Bush administration. Um, other things is uh, Rudd has announced uh, his intention to remove the Australian troops from the fiasco. I think there are 500 mm-hmm. uh, troops, yeah. Australian troops remaining in Iraq, <clears throat> so they intend to remove them. Uh, that's hardly surprising. I think he's also announced that they will no longer uh, sell uranium to uh, to uh, to India because India has not signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. I always trip over that word. Um, and uh, and and in in terms of upholding the principles of international law as negotiated through treaties amongst countries, I think that's a good. Uh, it's really a very good policy. That's bound to create some screaming and crying because Australia was a, is a prime source of uranium hmm. ore from what i understand so but one other thing to be learned so we'll of course we'll see i mean uh the the speculation i've seen about uh rudd is is he's probably comparable his policies and views are probably comparable to many many of the democratic party here and as you know i and danny and uh, many of our listeners are hardly satisfied with the performance of the democratic party in the u.s uh so it's i don't i don't pretend that rudd will be uh will be an enormous salvation however uh he could hardly be worse than that wally howard and so it'd be really uh, great to uh, to get rid of him. Last time I was in Australia, I remember there was a huge controversy because uh, Howard was continually pressing to uh, have, if you can believe this, to introduce um, 
drilling for oil in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Uh, luckily, that uh, mm. that didn't that didn't come to pass because. Uh, uh, but anyway, it was quite quite a controversy, and it was just like staggering to imagine this. But in any case, um, one thing I wanted to mention about Rudd, though, is that he's uh, quite the parliamentarian. And last week, I have a we want to play for you uh, a little uh, um, a little speech or a little uh, yeah speech that uh, Kevin Rudd made in the Australian Parliament, in which he was while while Howard was still Prime Minister, I think it was last week. Uh, you may know that uh, John Howard uh, was dutifully. Uh, uh, plugging for uh, interfering in American politics and plugging for uh, the for Bush. So in particular, he uh, made a statement last week uh, saying that, uh, you know, if he were uh, Osama bin Laden, he would be, you know, just delighted uh, waiting for mar- mar- marking March 2008 and hoping that uh, Obama in particular would, would be, be lot, yeah. would be the nominee mm-hmm. because he because he thinks that would be the best gift ever. You know, as if George Bush hasn't been. But never mind that. We, we, we're not here to discuss the merits of that absurd proposition. Uh, and, and moreover, uh, a further statement about the Democrats, actually, which you'll hear. And uh, and Kevin Rudd uh, uh, stood up uh, and and made a, a brief speech which I'd like to play for you uh, in response to that. And one reason I want to play it is because uh, I think it's a very good worked example for uh, what it means to be a, uh, at the moment that this speech was given, the minority party, what it means to be uh, opposing, well, they have a parliamentary system, so it's cl- slightly different, but opposing the leader and of the opposite party, what it means to be in opposition and what it means to uh, dispense with the nonsense that we're fed every day from people like Bush or in the case of the Australian government, uh, John Howard, un, uh, until now. Uh, so I'd like to play this speech. It'll run for a couple of minutes. I think you may enjoy it. Order, order. The Honourable, the Leader of the Opposition. Thanks, Mr Speaker. I seek leave to move the following motion. This House censures the Prime Minister for his statement that al-Qaeda is voting for a Democratic order. Party candidate to order. win the Members next United right. States presidential election. Two... His false statement today in Parliament that his statement yesterday was restricted to one US Senator and not to the Democratic Party as a whole. Three, the damage that this partisan comment has done to the United States-Australia alliance and to Australia's relationships with both, um, both American, Democratic and Republican members of the Congress. And four, the gross insensitivity of lecturing the United States presidential candidates on Iraq when the war in Iraq is responsible for the deaths of more than 3,000 US servicemen and women, the wounding of another 20,000 and expenditures exceeding 360 billion, and finally demands that the Prime Minister unreservedly withdraws this remark. His leave granted. Leave is granted. The Honourable the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, Mr Speaker. How can the man who is Prime Minister of this country come into this Parliament and say that he is a person of experience on the question of national security when, within the last 24 hours, he has made this statement that when it comes to the operation of al-Qaeda and its dealings in the world of international affairs today, that somehow al-Qaeda is a organisation, a terrorist organisation, that would prefer to see a Democrat win the next presidential elections rather than any other representative of another political party. The Prime Minister today has inserted that, in fact, he was only making a reference to Mr Obama, one of the US Democratic Party presidential candidates. It's important that we place this unequivocally on the record. 
Yesterday, the Prime Minister was asked this question in relation to the Obama plan. Yes, I think he's wrong. I mean, he's a long way from being President of the United States. I think he's wrong. I think that that would just encourage those who wanted completely to destabilise and destroy Iraq and create chaos and victory for the terrorists to, tank, to hang on and to hope for Obama victory. If I was running al-Qaeda in Iraq, I would put a circle around March 2008 and pray as many times as possible for a victory, not only for Obama, but also for the Democrats. But also for the Democrats. That is not an addition invented by the Australian Labor Party. That's not an addition invented by anybody else. That was spoken yesterday, or would we dare say misspoken yesterday, by the Prime Minister of Australia on a matter of great consequence. That is the future of this country's relationship with the United States, particularly on the question of the future direction of Iraq policy. To accuse the Democratic Party of the United States as being al-Qaeda's party of choice, to accuse the Democratic Party as being the terrorists' party of choice, this is a most serious charge. To accuse the party of Roosevelt, to accuse the party of Truman, to accuse the party of Kennedy and Johnson of being the terrorist party of choice. I cannot understand how any responsible leader of this country can say to the nation that it is his serious view that the Democratic Party of the United States is the terrorist party of choice, but these are your words, Prime Minister. I did not invent them. They are yours. And in this parliament today, we gave you every opportunity order, to order, say order. that you got it wrong. The leader will refer his marks the through the chair. We gave the Prime Minister every opportunity to say that it was wrong. It may have been that he got caught up in the flurry of the interview. It may have been that he didn't hear it clearly. It may have been that he didn't understand it clearly. I understand that these things can happen. But when you are given not once but twice but on three separate occasions in this place today an opportunity to say, I got that wrong, I didn't mean that, and for him to pass each one of those up, I think says much about the partisan nature with which this Prime Minister now views the relationship with our great American ally. Let us be absolutely clear about what is at stake here. Not just an attack on a single US senator, but an attack upon an entire political party. And here is where Australia's national interest kicks in. This party, the Democratic Party, currently controls the majority in the United States House. It controls the majority in the United States Senate. And within a year or so's time, may control the White House itself. And this is the party which this Prime Minister in this country and this Parliament today has reaffirmed, he describes as the terrorist party of choice. This is a serious matter. Prime Minister, could you imagine if I stood up in this Parliament as the alternative Prime Minister and said to the people of Australia that the terrorists would be advantaged if the Republicans were to return to the White House at the next presidential election? Ponder for a moment how that would be regarded. How would it be seized on by those opposites? If I stood at this dispatch box, if I appeared on national television and said that the Republicans, if they won, would cause an eruption of joy on the part of Al-Qaeda and the part of the terrorists, can you imagine the reaction from those opposites? This is a grave mistake. And I fear that it reflects a deep view on the part of the Prime Minister in terms of those with those he may not share a view within the US political system.
That was uh, Kevin Rudd uh, addressing the Australian Parliament, giving John Howard the what for and demonstrating what it is to be an opposition politician and what it is to oppose the leader of the opposing party, which uh, the Democrats could certainly use as a lesson um, and uh, and putting uh, putting Howard in his place. It's worthwhile mentioning that Howard was sitting just inches away, as I am from Danny right now, uh, when delivering when delivering this in the typical manner of the Australian and, uh, for that matter, British Parliament as well. So uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. I just want to bring up one other topic, which uh, is just uh, been a, a story unfolding in the na- just the last couple of days. Uh, there was an article in Time Magazine by uh, Joe Klein, a, a common, you know, <clears throat> a pundit there in, in Time Magazine, about the new uh, law that about uh, the new FISA extension that the, that uh, is being proposed by the Democrats to fix a small loophole in FISA, um, and. Um, he wrote this article in Time Magazine, and it said a lot of stuff, but one of the things it said is that it would require the surveillance of every foreign terrorist target's calls to be approved by a FISA court, an institution founded to protect the rights of U.S. citizens only. In a lethal shorthand of political ad- adver- advertising, it would give terrorists the same legal protections as Americans. This is well beyond stupid. Well, it turns out that this is a completely false reading of the bill, and uh, Glenn Greenwald of Salon.com has been... Um, uh, uh, analyzing this and, and, and pointed this out in one of his columns. Uh, if I may read just one sentence from the actual bill, it says, uh, notwithstanding any other provision of this act, a court order is not required for electronic surveillance directed at the acquisition of the contents of any communication between persons that are not known to be United States persons or are reasonably believed to be located outside of the United States. That, though, that, that's plain old English that anybody can read. So Joe Klein tried to correct this in weaselly various ways, uh, kept weaseling around, and finally at the end ended up simply saying that, uh, well, this was beyond what he could actually um, uh, under understand it says uh, it says I have neither the time nor background to figure out who's right on this matter so it's really a completely ridiculous situation I mean, where he was fed lines by some Republican and this regurgitated it into his art co- column in the magazine this is the mighty Wurlitzer in action so that's Joe Klein reporting for Time Magazine Glenn Greenwald from Salon.com is moving uh, is putting a lot of pressure on them and Time promises to have some uh, response to this in their next edition coming out later this week so uh, keep an eye on that because it's a really good worked example of, of the uh, control of the corporate media and the way in which that's manipulated by the uh, by our delightful government. Uh, well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, for, uh, thank you all for listening to Left Out. Thanks to John Katruba for producing today's program, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening.